0: 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not by workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing In the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful fame on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service? get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Well, let us pray and ask God to help us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work in us mightily and powerfully to the praise of of your glorious grace. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our lips to sing your praise. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, John Casper Branner was the Arkansas State Geologist from 1887 to 1893, In the winter of 1893, so over 120 years ago, Branner left Arkansas to found the geology department of an upstart university in California named Stanford. Throughout the 1890s though, Branner returned to Arkansas to pursue geological surveys. He brought with him one summer a Stanford undergraduate who helped him with his work here in Arkansas. And Branner was an accomplished geologist. He even became president of Stanford University in 1913. But that's nothing compared to the undergraduate who helped Branner in Arkansas one summer in the 1890s he went on to become the 31st president of the United States of America. Herbert Hoover was that young Stanford undergraduate in the heat of Arkansas one summer in the 1890s. And it's appropriate for me to mention Hoover because he did something really unusual during his presidency. And I'm not, of course, talking about Uh, being president at the start of the Great Depression. That's what he's most known for. But Hoover's unusual because while president of the United States, he gave away his entire salary. Did you know that? I I even read that um, he, he wanted to refuse a salary altogether. But when he was prevailed upon to take a salary, he very clearly gave it away to charity. Well, he was a geologist and he actually, before he became president, toured all over the world doing mining work. So he was in the position um, not to need a salary. But why would you do that? Why would you give up your salary? It's uh, something that only one president since Hoover has done. John F. Kennedy also gave his entire salary away to charity. If you do that, what you're communicating to people is, "I look, I'm not serving my country in order to line my pocketbook. I'm here to serve, but I'll pay my own way. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's saying that though he's a minister of the gospel and has every right to receive money for the work that he's doing, he nevertheless is foregoing that right in order to communicate something to people. He's not working amongst the Corinthians for the money. On the contrary, he paid his own way. And he asked them for no financial support whatsoever. And he did it so that he could at the end of the day, verse 18, say that he preached the gospel free of charge. And he did it because, verse 12, he did not want to create any obstacle between people hearing the message of redemption in Jesus and accepting it. But Paul doesn't mention any of these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to remind the Corinthians that they owe him a salary, but he's not receiving it. Instead, Paul is talking about these things in chapter 9 because he's just told them in chapter 8 that if your action offends a brother or sister in Christ then you should be willing to give up a freedom. If eating meat before idols, in the case in chapter 8, if eating meat before idols offends a brother or sister in Christ, then even though you have every right to eat the meat, you should refrain out of concern for the brother or sister. And so Paul in chapter 9, this is simply one long illustration of the principle that he defends In chapter 8, he's telling them that he practices what he preaches. He's reminding them that in his own life, he is willing to give up a right in order to further people's love for Jesus. So if you're um, slow to give up some tasty meat uh, that may offend your Christian brother, Paul is saying, look at me. I've given up my salary. That's how important the gospel is to me. That's how important it is that people love Jesus to me. And Paul prosecutes his argument here in chapter 9. It's what he calls his defense in verse 3. He prosecutes this argument in three ways. Um, First, in verses 1 and 2, if you look down, when he talks about his apostleship, He's he's describing the relationship that he has with the Corinthians. Then in verses 4 to 14, he actually defends the right that he has as a preacher of the gospel to receive a salary. And then in verses 15 to 18, he tells them why he gives up the right, why he relinquishes this right. And he does so for I think, an unexpected reward. So we have three R's for our uh, main headings, not reading, writing, and arithmetic, but relationship, right, and reward. Relationship, right, and reward. First, relationship. In verses one and two, Paul reminds them that he's not a stranger to them. He's not telling them these things because... He's he's foreign to them. No, on the contrary, he's their apostle. And in chapter four, first Corinthians, if you remember, he says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's intimately connected with these Corinthians. But that alone, of course, doesn't make you an apostle. It's his relationship to Jesus. Verse one. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul actually saw the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus commissioned him to go and to tell people about him. And that's what Paul did all over the Mediterranean and in Corinth. And Paul reminds these Corinthians in chapter 2, that he didn't use fancy words when he came to them. He says in chapter two, verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in chapter nine, verse two, when he says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul is reminding them Of the work that God has done in their midst. Their lives were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit as Paul faithfully preached the message of redemption in Jesus. So Paul has a relationship to these Corinthians. That's our first point. So having established the relationship, he then turns to establishing the right to receive a living from preaching the gospel. In verse 4, he tells us that he has a right to eat and drink. That is, Paul has every right to ask the Corinthians to support him in his ministry. And he has more than that, for in verse 5, Paul says that he has a right to marry. Why would you mention that he has a right to marry in the context of talking about eating and drinking? It's because Paul clearly thought that if a minister, if a man is single and he marries a wife and they have children, then a a congregation should be obligated not simply to support the man but also the man and his family. And verse 5 makes clear that The average apostle, if I can speak that way—not that they were average—but the average apostle was married, and it's certainly clear that that Peter, whom Paul here calls Cephas, that Peter was married. And if you look at Matthew chapter eight, verse fourteen, and Mark chapter one, verse thirty, it's obvious that Peter was married. So, just an aside: notice how wrong people are who say that a preacher of the gospel should not be married. For Paul clearly thinks not only that preachers of the gospel are married, but even a preacher of the gospel, while being a preacher of the gospel, could get married, have children, and expect his church to support him. Now, of course, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul... Uh, Has no plans to get married. Nevertheless, it is the case that a minister has a right not simply for his own support, but his family's as well. He's free to marry if he wants to. He's just choosing not to. Now, there's six arguments that Paul makes in this chapter. And we'll cover them quickly. But let me just establish, let me get them out right at the start. So to establish his right to financial support, Paul appeals to one, a general principle of employment, two, to the Old Testament, three, to reciprocity, give and take, four, to Corinthian practice, five, to temple practice, and finally, sixthly, to Christ's own command. So as I promise, I promise you will cover each one quickly. First, there's a general principle of employment. We see this in verse 7 if you look down. When he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? A soldier is right to expect rations in the army. Someone who plants a vineyard plants in the hope of getting some of its fruit. And someone caring for a flock expects milk. Just think about it in our own context. Let's um, say you come over to my house and you mow my lawn as a favor to me. That's one thing. But if I expect you to be at my house at 10 a.m. every Thursday, you're going to want more than a thank you. You're going to want some kind of payment. And that's that's Paul's first point. Workers deserve their wages. Second, Paul appeals to the Old Testament in verses 8 to 10. And I really love this. Paul quotes the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy from the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. And Paul immediately applies this verse to preachers of the gospel. Verse 10. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? Well, how are we to understand Paul's comments here? Uh, it's interesting, but one, one commentator notes that, that Paul actually could have chosen a better verse. You know, I can't imagine writing a commentary and writing, you know, Paul could have chosen a better verse, but, but one commentator did. Deuteronomy 24:15, for example. Uh, talking about a poor worker's uh, wage, says, give it to him, quote, on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. Why then does Paul choose a verse about muzzling an ox? I think the best answer is that Paul is using the Old Testament to make an argument from the less to the greater. It's not an analogy. We're not supposed to somehow imagine preachers as oxen, though, I mean, perhaps sometimes we actually do. To think rightly about this passage, we should consider that, as one commentator points out, it is not the ox that has the principal part in plowing or treading out the corn, but man by whose industry the ox himself is set to work. Paul is saying that if it's appropriate for the ox to get food, then how much more appropriate is it for the man who's making the ox to work? And I think that's how we should understand the rest of verse 10. The plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing In the crop. And how much more then. Should ministers of the gospel. Receive a living. For their much more valuable work. So that's the second way. Paul establishes his right. Third in verse 11. Paul appeals. To reciprocity. To give and take. He says look. Having received. Spiritual benefit from me. It is not. An appropriate for me to ask for material benefit from you. Fourth, in verse 12, Paul, when he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Paul is basically saying, look, you already recognize, you already recognize that other people who are teaching you have the right to receive a living. We see this um, more in Second Corinthians, where it becomes a point of issue. And so it's not inappropriate if they already uh, licensed the principle, somebody who teaches us about Jesus deserves to get some money for it, that they would withhold money from the man who first brought them the message of redemption in Jesus, namely the Apostle Paul. Fifth, in verse 13, Paul appeals to temple worship. Now, it's unclear here whether he's talking about the temple worship in Jerusalem or pagan temple worship or maybe both. But it doesn't matter because the principle is the same. Priests universally receive support for their temple service. And Christian ministers have a similar right that arises from their faithful preaching of the gospel. Finally, in verse 14, Paul reminds the Corinthians that it's the Lord himself. And when he says the Lord commanded, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And we see in Matthew 10, 10 and in Luke 10, 7. Jesus doing just that. So Paul proves that a Christian preacher has a right to receive financial support from a general principle of employment, from the Old Testament, from reciprocity, from Corinthian practice and from temple practice, and from Christ's own command. So it's obvious, as Paul says in verse 14 that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul proclaims the gospel. And he has every right to expect a living from it. But he doesn't exercise that right. He has the right, but he refuses to exercise it. Why does he do so? Why does Paul refuse the right to a salary? Well, he tells us Paul chooses not to exercise the right because Paul is looking for a reward. And that's our third point Paul's reward. He gets no reward for preaching the gospel, he says in verse 16, because necessity is laid upon him. He can't help but preach the gospel. Verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But, he says, he's got the prospect of a special reward, and he's seeking it. He's obtaining this special reward. Now, what is a special reward? Is it some kind of special merit in heaven? No, not at all. Paul describes... His preaching the gospel as a stewardship, almost a kind of slavery. And does a master thank his servant because he did what was commanded? No, not at all. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, when you have done all that you've uh, been commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. So Paul's work isn't meritorious, he's not earning God's favor by working for free. And after all, if that were the case, then all ministers should preach the gospel free of charge in order to earn God's favor. And besides, it can't be God's favor because Paul makes clear what his reward is. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 18, What then is my reward? What's his reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What did he just say? His reward is not exercising his right. As one commentator puts it, in other words... Paul's reward was to sacrifice himself for others. Paul's reward is to sacrifice himself for others. The meaning is all the more clear when we think about what the word reward uh, actually means. It's the common everyday word for wages. He's saying, do you know what wages I receive from my gospel work? I'll tell you, I get to suffer for you. I get to be inconvenienced, but you get to be refreshed. I get to work hard, but you can relax. And this outrageous exclamation in verse 18 helps us understand Paul's talk of boasting In verses 15 to 16. It's interesting. Paul's use of the word boasting. Here and elsewhere in his letters. Is unusual. It's unusual to our ears. And it would have been unusual to the ears of his original audience. Paul takes a word that is almost universally used in a negative connotation. And he puts a positive spin on it. You could say that Paul Christianizes the word boasting. And this passage offers a word of caution to anybody who would go away from the Bible into the language of how people were using words in the first century and try to force that meaning back into Scripture. If you did that in this context, based on how his contemporaries use the word that he uses, then you would just assume that Paul is confessing a sin. Forgive me for boasting. But notice that he's not. He's offering a unique contribution to the word boasting that's simply not found elsewhere. He's saying that there's a particular kind of, shall I say it, Christian boasting that is defensible, appropriate, and even something to pursue. So it's a wonderful reminder that we must interpret scripture by the words of scripture. But anyway, what's Paul going on about? What is his boasting Well, one commentator suggests that Paul's boasting is to the Corinthians. It's proof to them that he is sincere in his ministry. Another commentator suggests that it's Paul's own internal reflection. It's a high degree of satisfaction and comfort that he has when he thinks about preaching the gospel for free. I don't think it matters which way we go because either interpretation of the word gets us to the same conclusion. Paul has a godly satisfaction when he considers the work that the Lord has given him to do. And dear friends, I say this as a minister of the congregation. I so hope that we live our lives and our pastor, Ted Wanger lives his. That when Ted thinks about the work that God is doing at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, that he smiles. I hope he feels the Lord's pleasure. Now, of course, I hope that we give Ted a lot less trouble than the Corinthians gave the Apostle Paul. But I hope that Ted feels the same kind of satisfaction that Paul did 2,000 years ago. Paul has a special relationship to these Corinthians. He preached the gospel to them. And that relationship carried certain privileges, including the right to marry, including the right to have your church, have your congregation support you in your living. But we know that Paul refused that right. He said no to it. And he was looking for a peculiar reward. His reward was that he got to preach the gospel for free. Now that is a strange reward but it's not so strange when you think about Paul's role model. As Paul himself tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus had every right not to suffer. He had every right to stay in heaven and let us go to hell. But as Paul writes to the Philippians, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus died for us because he loved us. He became poor so that we might become rich. And that's Paul's role model. And that's our role model too. And it means that if I have to give up something... For your sake. And you have to give up something for mine. Then we ought to say to each other. And to ourselves. How sweet it is. To suffer for one another. How wonderful it is. To give up a freedom. Out of love. For a brother or sister in Christ. Now if someone says that we're not free. In Jesus. Or that we don't have. Certain privileges then we ought to gently and lovingly correct them. But oh, how sweet it is, or at least how sweet it ought to be to give up our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the kind of attitude that we should have towards each other. And that's the kind of attitude that we should have when we give up what is owed to us out of love for a brother or sister in Christ. And if we're honest, that's not the attitude that we have, is it? Or if it is, we give up our rights begrudgingly, or we want recognition. So we must pray that God the Holy Spirit will so work in our hearts that we can live in freedom and that we can gladly and joyfully give up freedoms and privileges for the sake of one another. Well, let's pray and ask God to do just that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that we have in the Apostle Paul, but most of all in the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor to make us rich. O oh Lord, may we so love Jesus that we would gladly and easily give up freedoms and privileges out of love for one another, and most of all, out of love for you. Work in us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we now get to...